How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here this evening to study your word, to understand such vital subjects as relates to the creation, creation of man, man's, mankind's purpose, and mankind's meaning. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things as we study. We continue to pray for our nation, for our president, for military leaders, for civic leaders, that you would give them the wisdom the information they need to make wise decisions and to that you would continue to protect us and watch over us as a nation. Father, we do pray for us now as we study your word that as we get into some things that may be a little complicated and a little more complex than what we're used to, that you'd help us to think clearly and, and objectively about the things that we study. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue to speed our way through Genesis 1-1. We just might finish the first verse this morning. This evening, rather. See, I'm already confused. We just might finish the first verse. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to spend four weeks on every verse in Genesis. If I did that, we probably wouldn't finish before the millennium ended. And I don't mean the, the, this present millennium, I mean the millennial kingdom. We don't even know when that will start. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. We looked at this last time and said actually there are four distinct beginnings we could talk about in Scripture. The first is a beginning that isn't a beginning, and that is the beginning of God who has no beginning. He is eternal. Scripture on that that we looked at was Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we have the beginning of angels. This happens before the beginning of the universe. This happens before Genesis 1, 1, I believe. Psalm 48, 2, and Psalm 48, 5 along with Colossians 1.16, tells us that they are creatures and that they were created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Job 38, 4-7, tells us that at the time of the creation of the earth, the angels were united and they shouted together for joy. Psalm, I mean, excuse me, Job 38, 4 and 5, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then in verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now this is a very important verse because it is the only verse that gives us any direct information regarding the beginning of the universe. God is eternal and has no beginning and no end. Then we have a beginning point for the angels, and I would speculate, and I think that in this case there is a room for a certain amount of speculation within the parameters of Scripture, but I want to make sure I identify it as such. I would speculate that God created the angels and then almost immediately creates the universe and the earth, Genesis 1-1, as their habitation. And so the heavens and the earth are then created immediately after the angels. So this second line here represents the angels. Uh, 
and the third, the universe. And that it is not till some time later that God creates man, and we will come to understand that probably next time when we start getting into the issue of the relationship between the second verse and the first verse. But there's a lot of speculation. There's different views as to when God created the angels. There is, um, let me give you the, the three views. View number one, God creates the angels before Genesis 1-1. View two, that God creates the angels between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. The third view is that God creates the angels on day three, and this is usually argued for on the basis of the analogy that you find in scriptures where the angels are spoken of metaphorically as the stars of heaven. You find that even here in our passage of Job 38, uh, 7, when the morning stars sang together. And so this relates it to that point. And then you would not, of course, have the angelic conflict or the fall of Satan until after Genesis 2, verse 3. Now that, I think, is very important, and I think that it presents certain uh, theological problems. So I prefer to that the first view that the angels are created before Genesis 1-1, and you do have a solid statement here in verse 7, that they were present when God lays the foundation of the earth, sets its measurements, stretches the line on it, sinks its bases, and lays its cornerstone. Now the third... the First beginning is God, second beginning, the angels, third beginning, the universe, fourth beginning is man, which occurs in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where you have the overview and the specifics are then given in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll look at that connection a little later on. So the fifth beginning that I mentioned last time is found in various passages in the New Testament, that's the beginning of the church. And you find it in such passages as 1 John 2, 7, uh, 2 John verses 5 and 6 also emphasize this from the beginning, you have this new commandment. So the word term beginning is used to reference the beginning of the church age. So we've looked at the first phrase that we have in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning... And it should be translated as a definite noun because beginning reshith in the Hebrew is a definite noun. It Just because you don't have the definite article ha there, you do have a preposition prefixed to the noun, and the preposition normally takes the place of a, of a article. In fact, I did a search on this years ago, and I didn't find any place where, where Rashith is used with the preposition where you have a definite article, even when it's referring to what is clearly a, a, a definite beginning. And that is what leads lexicographers, that's people who spend their time studying words, to make decisions about whether or not nouns are inherently definite or not. So we've looked at the beginnings, now we look at the next main word in English, and that is God, even though God is the third word in Hebrew. The second word in Hebrew in a typical sentence structure like this would be the verb, but we'll stick with the English pattern. And we come to God. What do we mean by the term God? I mean, you can go out and you can probably poll your neighborhood, and you can come up with as many different concepts of God from your neighborhood, from your street, as there are people. People think of God, and for some reason when it comes to God, and, and I don't mean for just some reason, I think it has to do with total depravity in Romans 1, suppression of the truth and righteousness, people think that they can just generate out of their own mind, out of their own emotion, out of their own frame of reference, who God is. How do you know what God's like? Well, I think he's like this. Well, it seems to me, or I feel, or I think God would, and it's all personal opinion. It's very rare to find someone who will stop and say, the Bible says that God is this way. God has revealed himself to be a God who is 
holy and righteous and just, a God who is sovereign, love, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, veracity, and immutable. This is how God has revealed himself. One of the things I saw a few weeks ago on television before the war began in Iraq, I don't know if any of you watched it, I went home and I was channel surfing and came across Larry King, and I, sometimes I like to stop and see who he's interviewing, and on this particular night, it was a Wednesday night right after Bible class, he had on a panel of five different pastors as spokesmen for different positions coming out of different traditions, and they were discussing the issue of just war. And he had three evangelicals. And I was surprised from their strength. Uh, one, they had uh, uh, Max Lucado, who's from San Antonio. I think he's a Church of Christ minister, very popular writer, and I'm not sure about his theology in many areas. John MacArthur, Jr., who's pastor of Grace Community Church in uh, Southern California. And John MacArthur is also president of Master's Seminary and College. And you know, Dr. MacArthur has many good things. I used to love to listen to him years ago. Unfortunately, he became enamored with the, with the Puritans and got into Lordship Salvation, and that has really marred much of what he has to say. And then there was Bob Jones III, who's president of Bob Jones University. On the other hand, there was a Methodist bishop who really was out of his league, and then there was a, a very liberal Roman Catholic priest from somewhere up in the northwest I don't think you can have anybody from up in the Northwest that's not liberal, but there may be a few exceptions. I know we have a number of tapers that are up in that area, so that's probably the the conclave of conservatives in the Northwest. Anyway, what I appreciated was MacArthur. You know, there are a lot of things I could say critical of MacArthur's soteriology and his lordship salvation, but MacArthur is a man who understands that authority comes from the scriptures and it comes from nowhere else. And every time Larry King fired a question at him, every time somebody else gave a human viewpoint opinion, MacArthur would very graciously and kindly, when it came to his, his opportunity, I thought, my, I doubt I would be that patient. He just calmly said, well, the scriptures say. And then he would quote the scriptures. He would always go to a biblical example. He always made it clear. In fact, one time Larry King asked him, say, well, what's your opinion? And uh, MacArthur said, it's not my opinion. It's what the Bible says. And he just made that real clear. Every time he spoke, he said, the scriptures say. And so we live in an era today when people think that they can figure out spirituality just from generating it up from their own subjective impressions. And that's true about the meaning for God. So what do we mean when we use the term God? Now, by, very, by asking that question, for some people that sounds presumptuous. Well, everybody knows what God is. But see, you have some people today who think that God is nothing more than an impersonal force. It's just sort of like it's something akin to the magnetic field around the earth. Other people think that God is just some sort of grandfatherly figure up there who's always just sort of patting people on the head. Other people have a view of God as, perish the thought, some matriarchal Amazonian woman who is running things. Mother Earth or Mother Gaia Earth. You have all kinds of views of God. So you have to address the question as to what this means. And, of course, this is a major problem on the mission field. You go encounter a culture that has no roots in biblical teaching, then they have usually a, a multiplicity of gods. And if you mention the word God then they think of all the other gods they have, and when you come and you speak about the God of Scripture, they just want to add that God, add Jesus to their their list of gods, their, their already existing pantheon, which is the problem that Paul and Barnabas had in, in, uh, uh, on their first missionary journey. And they were mistaken in, as, as being gods themselves, as being Zeus, and Hermes, and Hermes, and that was in uh, in Lystra. So you have to identify who God is, and this is why Paul, when he went to the Gentiles, always started with God as the Creator. And so what we see in this first verse is that God is the Creator of everything. the The word that is used for God here is the Hebrew word Elohim. As we covered several weeks ago, there are 
many different word, Hebrew words for God, and Elohim is sort of a generic term for God, what we would use in English as just uh, God, little g. It could refer to the idols as uh, as gods, or it can refer to the God who is the unique creator of heaven and earth. The ending, I am, in a Hebrew word, is the plural ending. The singular is the Hebrew word El, E-L. And when you add the ending I am, it becomes a plural. The reason it is not translated gods is usually said, said to be because this is the plural of majesty. Now, I have a disagreement with this. There may be a plural of majesty, but I don't think that, that, um, that this is it. And the reason is that I think there's a tendency among scholars to go too far overboard in saying, well, you can't find the Trinity in the Old Testament. Don't go to the plurality of God's name. And the reason I think that's a problem is because of the way Elohim is actually used in the context of Genesis chapter 1. For example, in verse 26, you not only have the noun Elohim, which is if it's a plural of majesty, it would always be dealt with in terms of of the verbs as and and pronouns as sing as a singular, but you have instead then Elohim said in verse twenty six, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So the plural pronoun that is used in verse twenty six um, mitigates against this argument that this is simply a plural of majesty Elohim and the plural of Elohim. It would include the concept of at least a plurality in the Godhead. It doesn't teach the Trinity in and of itself. It just contains within itself the idea of a plurality in the Godhead. So we have just a statement that God creates. But we know from later revelation that God exists as a Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And from subsequent revelation, we know that all three members of the Trinity are involved in the creation. There are different roles within the Godhead. One is not, they're not subordinate to one another in terms of, in terms of, uh, uh, essence. They're equally God, but they are subordinate in terms of role and function so that God the Father is viewed as the architect, the planner, the one who as the overall plan, the son is the contractor, as it were. He is the one who is more immediately involved in the construction of the universe. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who does is involved in renewal and renovation. Colossians 1.16 again tells us, For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And the him there refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.3, John says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is the the man on the scene, as it were, the contractor on the scene who makes sure that everything gets done. And it is the Holy Spirit who is involved in the renovation and renewal work that we see in the second verse. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And that word moving is a as we'll see, is an intense word. It is from the, it's a P.L. form, which is the intense stem in the Hebrew of Rachaf, and it has the idea of fluttering. And there are those that suggest, and I think with, with some reason, that as the Spirit of God is fluttering, this is a picture of movement, of vibration, that you have this, this world that exists in darkness. Darkness is on the face of the deep. When there is pitch darkness and there is no light, the temperature probably approaches absolute zero. So everything is frozen solid. There's no light in the universe. You just have the existence of this planet that is that is as almost as it were packed in ice. That conveys the idea that it may have been flooded, but that's not necessarily true. It is just dark. The earth may have had a tremendous amount of land mass on it, but at, at a temperature of absolute zero, it is going to be frozen solid.
There is no light, there's no heat, and with the fluttering motion of the Holy Spirit, you have movement, you have energy being introduced and into onto the earth, which it begins the process of renovation. So we learn, first of all, that God is a creator. Second, that God is eternal. From Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God alone is eternal. This sets him apart from everything else in creation. That means that the laws of physics, the laws of biology, the laws of math- mathematics, the laws of, uh, of ethics all come from him. He is the, he is the prototype and the prototype of everything is in him. He doesn't apply to some external standard for what he is. He pre-exists forever and ever and ever everything that ever was. The unique and third thing we learn here is that the unique characteristic of God against all other gods is his act of creation. It is this act of creation, we'll say ex nihilo, Creation, creation from nothing, from the Latin term, that is the defining event in all history for revealing who God is. This, almost beyond anything else, distinguishes God from everything else in history. And to demonstrate that, let's go from the first book in the Bible to the last book of the Bible and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation Chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we have John taken into the throne room of God, and in chapters 4 and 5, John is describing what he sees in the heavens. He describes what he is, what he sees in the heavens. Now in 5 9, we see the emphasis on redemption. The Lamb comes forth to open the scroll that nobody is worthy to open, and the angels sing a new song that he is worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. You who were slain, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. So redemption comes in in verse 9 of chapter 5. However, what precedes this? What precedes this? Turn back, just look across the page probably to... Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Before you come to a praise of the Son for his act of redemption, first you have praise for God for his act of creation. In 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they exist and were created. So it is in the presence of God that the angels praise him continuously because he created all things. So to learn who God really is, we must abandon pagan deceptions that surround creation. And that is not an easy thing to do because all thought systems that are in human history have some sort of pagan notion about who God is and what he is like. And the whole concept of Scripture is to completely renovate our thinking. This is really what the Bible means by repentance. It's not repenting of your sin. It's learning to change your mind about reality, to rethink everything from the ground floor up. And the ground floor starts with creation and origins. So this is not some secondary, trivial uh, doctrine that you don't want to deal with even in evangelism. It might distract people. I've dealt with that the last few weeks. It is something that the Bible sees is at the very core of the entire message of Scripture, and you can't understand Jesus, the Redeemer, unless you understand God, the Creator, who and what He is, because sin doesn't make sense unless you locate it in the context of a God who sets an absolute standard of righteousness which has been violated. And so you have to go to creation. It is not a secondary concept. So at the, as we go to the end of the Bible, we see that even in Revelation, there is an emphasis on, on creation. And this comes through even at the very end of Revelation. I want you to turn with me to the last couple of chapters in Revelation. Revelation chapters, chapter 21. 
Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, 1 we read, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then we skip down to verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, tell me, think about this a minute. Can you understand verse 4 if you don't understand Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man? It becomes absolutely meaningless. Not only that, if God created the heavens and the earth through some sort of long-term evolutionary process, then you got real problems interpreting the immediate creation of a new heavens and a new earth when it comes to Revelation 21.1. You have to have a consistent system of hermeneutics or interpretation through the scriptures. In Genesis, I mean Revelation 21, we read that the first creation is removed. Second Peter 3 describes it. It burns up in some sort of, you know, just atomic nuclear explosion. However, God is going to do it. The present heavens and the earth is just going to completely, uh, uh, be incinerated. And then God creates instantly a new heaven and a new earth for the inhabitation of believers throughout all of eternity. So the instant, if you don't, can't believe in an instantaneous creation of the heavens and the earth of the universe in Genesis 1-1, believe me, you have no reason to believe that there's an instantaneous creation of a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21, and you eviscerate the future hope of eternity for the believers. See, the issue in Genesis and in Origins is such that if you tweak with it, if you tweak it, if you twist it out of line, it's going to destroy soteriology. And, and as we will see as we develop things in the next couple of weeks, evolution is really an attack, a very subtle but damaging attack on the cross and the need for a Savior to go to the cross and die spiritually and physically for man. So in Revelation 21, 1 and 4, we see a literal uh, heaven, new heavens and new earth. And then we have even further implications uh, for a literal interpretation in the next chapter, in the last chapter of Revelation, Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So notice, there is a river that flows out of the throne of God in the uh, new earth and in the new Jerusalem. And in verse 3, there shall no longer be any curse. How can you understand verse 3 if you don't understand Genesis 3? If Genesis 3 isn't literal, then how can Revelation 22, verse 3, be understood in a literal sense? It can't. There shall be no, no longer any curse in the throne of God, and the Lamb shall be in it and his bondservants shall serve him. Now one of the things that I find fascinating in studying Genesis and Revelation is Revelation deals with eschatology and Genesis deals with protology. New word for everybody tonight. Eschatology from the Greek word eschatos meaning last thing. So that's the study of last things and protology means the study of first things the study of the beginnings so we are involved in a study of protology and there is an interesting and fascinating symmetry that we see in the scriptures let me put a timeline across here from eternity past to eternity future Right in the middle of this timeline, which includes all of human history, or let's say biblical history, that which is covered in the scriptures from the creation of the angels to Revelation 22, the cross stands at the center point of the Bible. And I think that you can almost take it like a piece of paper and fold it so that what happens in the period after the cross 
is a reflection of what took place prior to the cross, but it is enhanced. It is enhanced. For example, the age before the cross is the age of law. The age after the cross is sometimes called the age of grace. Grace is the primary emphasis in the church age. It's not that there was no grace in the Old Testament, but we know that grace came by Jesus Christ, that there was law came by Moses and grace by Jesus Christ, and that this is an enhancement of issues that are foreshadowed in the age of law. Then you end with a millennial kingdom where there is a, a, a renewal in the millennial kingdom of the environment on the earth. The millennial kingdom, though, is not the earth is not completely perfect. There are still fossils, dead bodies in the earth. There are still cemeteries. There are still the scars from the wars of the tribulation and all other human wars on the planet. Because you, that's why God does away with the present heavens and earth, because it has been marred by sin. The entire universe has been marred by sin. Not just man, not just the animals, not just nature, not just the creation of the earth, but the entire universe has been so marred by sin that God will have to destroy it completely, burn it up, and create a new heavens and new earth. Well, that period of the millennium is a reflection of the period from Eden to the law uh, prior to the giving of the Mosaic law, or prior to the flood, actually, prior to the flood, from Eden to the flood, because that was perfect environment once removed. It was only perfect environment once removed. After the flood, it's perfect environment twice removed. The environment after the flood is much, much less perfect and much more marred by sin than the environment that existed from the fall to the flood. And so the millennium is, is it's perfect environment in the sense that the government is perfect because there's a perfect king sitting on the throne and perfect justice on the earth. And there are certain things that are going to be shifted back in terms of the curse. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The child will put his hand into the cobra's den. All of these different factors. So that much of the curse will be rolled back. But it's not rolled back completely because fallen creatures, fallen men who are born in the in the millennial kingdom from uh, parents who are still mortal, who survived the tribulation, are going to have children who have and possess sin natures. So you still have sin in that millennial kingdom. It is not a perfect, perfect environment. It is, uh, it is better than what precedes it, and it's probably better than the environment from the fall to the flood because you have the perfect justice and rulership of Jesus Christ. And then you have the period after the millennium, where you have the new heaven and the new earth, and that is a mirror of what you have preceding the fall and and, pre, and probably preceding even the creation, at least preceding Genesis Genesis 1-2. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to point out some, some uh, comparisons. For example, when you get to Revelation chapter 22... There's no more darkness. There is no more darkness in the uh, new heavens and the new earth. The glory of God provides light for everyone. There is no sun and there is no moon in the new uh, new Jerusalem. Uh, for example, in Genesis, in Revelation 21:23, we read, "The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it." For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now think about this a minute. This is going to be a universe that exists where you have planet Earth and no sun and no moon and probably no stars. See, when we think of the word universe... What immediately pops into your head is a picture of all these galaxies out there, uh, the Andromeda galaxy, and you have various nebulae that are out there, and that's what you picture. And yet the picture of the, the universe that exists then, it doesn't have a sun, and I'm extrapolating that that means there probably aren't any other stars because the sun is just one of many stars. And they were all created for the specific purpose 
in Genesis chapter 1 for signs and seasons and days and years. And yet that purpose is no longer going to exist, and that purpose did not exist prior to the third day of, uh, of the creation week. So that is why I argue that the universe that exists in Genesis 1-1 is a universe completely unlike the universe that exists after Genesis 1-2. It is a universe that has the planet Earth in it, but nothing else is the same. In fact, if, if, if Humphreys is at least correct, and I mentioned him before, the idea would be that the, the, the box that the universe, that the Earth is in, which would be the space-time continuum, was much, much smaller. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm just repeating what he says. I am not a physicist. I do not even claim to understand all of the ramifications of the, of Einstein's theory of relativity, but that's the basis on which Humphreys argues, and it's just creative spec- speculation within the framework of what Scripture says. But something happens, as we'll see next time, something happens to the creation, and there is something radical in the way that the earth is described when we get to verse 2. A point that I'm making is that there's this symmetry between the beginning and the end. At the end, there's no darkness, there's no sun or moon, there's no sin, there's no suffering, and there's a river that flows out of the throne of God. When we look at the beginning of Genesis, what we see is uh, a sudden presence of darkness. Darkness throughout Scripture relates to uh, sin and evil. It's always symbolic of that. There probably was no sun or moon at the beginning of Genesis 1.1. It's not created till the third day. There's no sin. There's no suffering. And when God creates the geography of Eden... There is a river that flows out of Eden and then divides into four rivers. Now, you don't have anything like that on the earth today. Rivers converge today. You can have the Ohio and the Missouri merging in and forming the Mississippi. But you don't have a river like the Mississippi coming off of a mountain and then diverging into four rivers. That just doesn't happen. That doesn't take place. So, obviously, there are different physical, mechanical laws at work and a different uh, topography in the uh, pre-flood world. Now, we have looked at the word in the beginning. We've seen God, that this is the unique attribute of God, who the creator, the triune God who is creating in Genesis 1.1. And then we come to the third word, the important verb here, God created. This is the cal stem. Now, in Hebrew, there are various what they call stems. These are different categories. The cow stem is the, we would almost relate that to the indicative mood in Greek, the mood of reality. The niphal is a passive. The cow's active. The niphal is passive. The pl is intensive. The pu'al is the passive of the pl. The pilpal, the polpal, the polel, the hithpael, and the hothpael. It really gets fun when you're studying Hebrew. But what we have here is, is the cow stem of bara, and that's your main root stem of a verb, and this word is used about 50, this verb is used about 50 times in the Old Testament, and every time you have it in the cow stem, only God is the subject of the verb. Man never baras, only God baras. So bara is a word that emphasizes divine creation. Now I think... um, at some point in the past, uh, creationists got a little over enthusiastic when it came to talking about uh, when it came to talking about bara, and they claimed that bara had the idea of ex nihilo creation inherent in the meaning of the word. Now let me go back and put this up here on the screen for you. Ex nihilo, e x is the first word nihilo, n i h i l o. This is Latin for out of nothing. In other words, two seconds before Genesis 1-1, nothing existed except God and the angels. God creates the angels out of nothing. God created the universe, the heavens and the earth, out of nothing. God then creates the great um, sea monsters, sea creatures, out of nothing. He then creates man out of nothing. These are the only times that... This, this verb, 
bara, b-a-r-a, that this word is used in the in the uh, first chapter of Genesis. And so people came along and they said, bara is the verb that means out of nothing. But that's not true. That is not true. The word bara is used in Isaiah chapter 43. Let me read the first verse to you. It's used several other times in that chapter in almost the same context. Isaiah 43.1, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob. So who's God talking to? He's talking to Jacob. He's talking to the nation of Israel, calling them Jacob. He said, Thus says Yahweh that created you, O Jacob. And the word created there is the Hebrew bara. Now was Israel created out of nothing? No, they were created from already existing materials. Abraham came along through the normal process of generation, through the normal process of procreation. So uh, that does not mean there that God created Israel out of nothing. The reason we can say that this has the idea of out of nothing is not because the core meaning of bara has out of nothing. It simply emphasizes the uniqueness and the creation of something by divine command. What bara emphasizes is just this uniqueness of God. Now, other passages and the context of Genesis make it clear that this is out of nothing. For example, Hebrews 11.3, by faith... We understand that the we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So that is ex nihilo creation. We also have the fact that in Genesis one one, the very context that God creates the heavens and the earth indicates that that there was nothing there before He created them. So He creates out of nothing, no pre-existing material. There are Three other words we need to pay attention to when we talk about creation. There's bara is the first word. The second word is asa. And we will see these words throughout our study of Genesis 1. Look down in Genesis 1. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to look at the creation of man in Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image. Now, the word there for make is this word, asa. It's usually translated do, make, sometimes create. And it is a more generic term for the act of making, fashioning, shaping, creating something. It is used in some passages, as a synonym for bara, but here's a point I want to make. When it's used as a synonym for bara, it is the more technical bara that defines the meaning of asa, and there are too many scholars who want to destroy the significance of bara by coming along and, and going from asa and saying, see, it's a general word, don't make such a big deal out of bara. Uh, it's used in parallelism with asa in these passages, so it's not that big a deal. No, the technicality of bara restricts the meaning of the broader word. And that's always true in any kind of poetry that if you're paralleling two words and one word is more precise than the other word, that restricts the field of meaning of the more general word. So asa is the more general word used for, for create. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. Then in verse 27, God, we read, So God created bara. He created man in his own image. So you see a parallel there in verse 26. You have asa, but we have bara in verse 27, which indicates it is a unique creation. that Man has it uniquely created by by God. And then turn over to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and we see the actual mechanics. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And here we have our third word for creation, Yatsar. And this has the idea of fashioning, molding, or shaping. 
This would be the word that a potter would use for shaping a clay vessel. And so it is a particularly appropriate word for the construction of the male body here that God uh, forms man, and here it is the male, out of the dust of the ground, and that is the formation of his physical body. He forms man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became became a living being. Now, when he breathes in the breath of life, that's the Hebrew neshama, that is soul life. It is combination of the body, which is biological life, plus the soul life that equals human life. When that body was there, before God breathed, it was just a body. He wasn't a living person yet. It's only when he gets the soul that he becomes full human life. So the biological life is Yatser. The soul life is Bara. And together the entire process is referred to as creation Asa. So that's how these three words can be used, all of the same basic act of creation, because each relates to different different elements. So the human body is constructed from the chemicals of the soil, the dust of the earth, and the soul life is created ex nihilo, out of nothing, and breathed into the body, and the entire act is called asa, God making man in his image. And then the fourth word that is used... And Hebrew students always have fun with the fourth one. I'll write it down here. And this is the Hebrew word bana, B-A-N-A-H. And bana means to build. And see, when when the male was was built, he was fashioned, he was shaped. But when the woman was body was made, down in verse 22. Uh, it's where we read the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he built into a woman. And so there's always the seminary students who come along. See, there's justification for saying that women are well built. And it's right from the scriptures. So there's, that, that's, I think that's a case of eisegesis. So these are our four words for build that we are going to find in our creation passages. Now, before we go much further, we have to address four questions. We won't make it through all four of them tonight. First of all, people ask these questions. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because people ask dozens and dozens of intricate, detailed questions when it comes to Genesis 1 through 11. All kinds of questions, and I've been asked most of them over the years, and I'm not about to be able to answer all of them because I don't think the Scriptures clearly answer all of them. I think that that Genesis 1-11, through though, gives us a framework and an important framework for understanding life and understanding the rest of the Bible, and that is why it's so important to take these chapters literally. And that is why they are foundational. You, you, you mess with Genesis 1 through 11 and you're going to destroy everything else in the Bible. And I want to address these questions because they always come up. They're questions that do concern almost everybody at some point or another. And yet, like most questions, people want simple answers. They say, well, what about this? And then after you get through answering them, they just sort of feel like their hair has been blown back. And they didn't want a 45-minute dissertation. But you see, there's a lot of questions that are important questions, and they can't be resolved with just a simple two-minute answer. And the other side of that is that that usually you give them a two-minute answer, and they say, well, what about this, and well, what about that, and what about this other thing? So when you try to give them the two-minute short version, you end up raising more questions than then you answered, and so you're back to spending 45 minutes answering the question to begin with. So we're just going to start off with the long, detailed answer and try to give them give as complete an answer as possible to these questions. The first question that you will find, and this usually comes from people who are have have come up out of a more secular background, uh, 
influenced perhaps by a more liberal orientation to theology. And by literal, I mean that they don't take the Bible as God's Word. They think of the Bible as just sort of a record of religious experiences of man. And therefore, these are just various uh, stories, just like any other religious book. Uh, no different. The, the Bible's no different from the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or the uh, or any other religious book in history. And so the question that is asked is, isn't Genesis 1 myth comparable to other ancient legends and mythologies? The Greeks had their creation myths. The Egyptians had their creation myths. The Babylonians had their creation myths. The Canaanites had their creation myths. And this is just the, the Jews' creation story. Isn't this just the same kind of thing. And if you have gone through college or university and been in any kind of comparative religion course, you've had some idiot, excuse me, some professor stand up in front of the class and tell you that the Bible's, this is just another legend of creation and it's no different from all of these other stories. So we have to answer that question. Second question. Could there be millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and could this not be the time frame for historical geology, all of the ages, uh, the dinosaurs, cavemen, and take all of evolution and just basically dump it into uh, this gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Is that not possible? And then the third question is how long are the days? Are these really 24-hour days? Must we understand them to be 24-hour days? Or could they just be seven long periods of time? This isn't seven 24-hour days. It's really seven million years. So we have to answer that question. And then finally, the question, could God have used evolution as a mechanism for creation? Could God have used evolution as a mechanism for creation? And it just might take four weeks to answer all four of these questions because they, they get at the very heart of understanding and interpreting Genesis 1. You need to sit down and read this as if it is history. It's more than history. It's not simple history. It's more than history. But you should get in the habit of reading the scriptures uh, literally. This is uh, you interpret the scripture the same way, uh, hopefully the same way you interpret the instructions you have to follow to fill out your income tax return. Because the way most people interpret scripture, if they interpreted their Bibles the way they interpret are interpreted. Their, their IRS tax return, the way they interpret Scripture, they would all be in jail. So, first question. Isn't Genesis 1 myth comparable to other ancient legends and mythologies? Well, in order to answer that, maybe we ought to look at one of the other legends or myths that was popular in that time. And the one that is most well-known is one that was discovered that is a Canaanite creation story, so it's right in the context of the land of Israel. And it is called Enuma Elish. And this is just the, uh, uh, from taken from the translation or the original of the first two words, when above. See, in the ancient world, they titled a document by the first two words. So the Bible is called, or Genesis is called Bereshith in the Hebrew because that's a Hebrew for in the beginning. So we're going to compare Genesis with this pagan text to see if there is something comparable. The Enuma Elish was discovered between 1848 and 1876 in King Asher Banerpal's library in Nineveh. Now, I think this is kind of fascinating right now because we have a lot of soldiers over there in the area of Nineveh and Babylon and in these areas, and this is the Babylonian uh, creation story. And that... Uh, Library of King Asher Banerpal's dates from the period of about 668 to 630 B.C. And the foremost expert on uh, this Enuma Elish was Dr. Alexander Heidel. And this is how he describes the story. Enuma Elish is the principal source of our knowledge of Mesopotamian cosmology. Yet Enuma Elish is not primarily a creation story at all. Its prime objective is to offer cosmological reasons 
for Marduk's advancement from the position as chief god of Babylon to that of the head of the entire Babylonian pantheon. In other words, this is really a political move and a a coup takeover by a secondary god, Marduk, who's the god with Babylon, and he's going to take over all the gods, and this is just a justification for Babylonian ascendancy. And remember, Babylon's only about 75 miles south of Baghdad. So the next time you're watching the news and you see Baghdad on the news, Baghdad is on the Tigris. And you're going to see the Tigris coming down through Baghdad, and then you see that other river just to the southwest, that's the Euphrates, and Babylon is on the Euphrates. So just drop a line south, about 75 miles, somewhere near the Karbala Gap, and that's where Babylon res- uh, existed and exists today. Uh, our friend Saddam Hussein thought that he would be the next Nebuchadnezzar. He had a fixation about it, so he rebuilt the city of Babylon. So that kind of places that in a little geographical context for you. Now, this all is to support Babylon's claim to supremacy over all of the other gods and goddesses. So it has a real epic tone to it. Now, whenever you think of anything that has epic proportion themes, think of the television show Battlestar Galactica or Star Wars or even the Superman stories. You, Whenever you have this, something of epic proportions, it always drives you back to origins. Origins and the beginnings are always brought in to some kind of de- some degree. And you see that especially in Star Wars. They couldn't be satisfied with just the first three. They have to go back and figure out where they all came from. And you know what? We still don't know where they all came from. We're going to have to go back and have another series of movies show where that came from. See, people are interested in where they came from. So... Anyway, Dr. Heidel has done a lot of work on this, and he sets this up, and I don't want to spend any more time just generally talking about it. I just want to point out a few things as we go through it. You can read along with me up on the... What happened to our uh, screen up here? We have some sort of... Has it been that way all night? It has? You all need to tell me that when that's off, off screen, because it really hasn't been... There we go. Okay. Now I don't have it. Now it's up there. It's through the projector, but not... See, you can get these projectors. They'll go four ways. They'll go up there, but not down here. Down here, but not up there. There we go. Okay, now we can all read it. When above... The heaven had not yet been named, and below the earth had not yet been called by name. So they, they're not even in existing, really. When Apsu primeval their begetter, Mumu and Tiamat, she who gave birth to them all, still mingled their waters together. So you have these three personages, Apsu, Mumu, and Tiamat. But what are they? They mingle their waters together. See, they're not personal. They're, they're material. They're water. Uh, no pasture land had been formed, not even a reed marsh was to be seen. When none of the other gods had been brought into being, when they had not yet been called by their names, their destinies had not yet been fixed. At that time were the gods created within them. So this gives us the beginning, the comparable to Genesis 1, 1, and the things that we, we see here. Notice the heaven isn't named yet, the earth isn't named they don't exist. You have just the presence of water. And the term here is Tiamat, which interestingly is etymologically related. I'm not saying they're the same thing, but it's etymologically related to the word the deep that we'll see in Genesis 1-2. That got the spirit moved on the face of the deep. That's Tehom in Hebrew. So there is a... See, what they did, they personify the chaotic sea in the in this goddess Tiamat. You have the presence of water. You have these three deities, Apsu, Mumu, and Tiamat, and the use of uh, the heaven and the earth. There's formlessness and there's chaos. Everything begins with chaos, but there's something, there's something that's there. And says so they lived many days, adding years. The divine brothers gathered together. They disturbed Tiamat. Well, where did Tiamat, where did these waters come from? See, they're already existing. There's something already there. There's matter and chaos already there. 
they disturbed Tiamat, assaulted their keeper, yet they disturbed the inner parts of Tiamat, moving and running about in the divine abode. It skips down, just took excerpts out of this. Marduk took from King of the Tablet of Destinies. Notice there's something impersonal that determines the fate of everything. You have the fates in Greek mythology as well. Uh, Marduk took from King of the Tablet of Destinies, which was not his rightful possession, after he had after he'd vanquished and subdued his enemies. And then he goes on and he just looked down to the third line, the Lord, that's uh, Marduk, trod upon the hinder part of Tiamat. Notice the, the, the violence here. With his unsparing club, he split her skull. He cut the arteries of her blood and caused the north wind to carry it to an out-of-the-way places. Marduk split Tiamat open like a muscle into two parts. Half of her he set in place and formed the sky as a roof, and he fixed the crossbar and posted guards. He commanded them not to let her waters escape. And a great structure, its counterpart, he established, namely the earth. So he splits her apart like a clam. Half becomes the heavens and half becomes the earth. So what you ha- notice the parallelism with modern evolution. It starts with already pre-existing matter. You don't know where it came from. It's in a chaotic state. And it is from matter that everything is, is created and somehow order, order is, is uh, brought to bear. So there is a tremendous difference between that, and we'll come back and look at it again next time because I had to hit it too fast tonight. But we'll come back and look at it next time. But notice the difference between that and the simplicity of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the deep. And so there is a tremendous difference. You can't just come along and make these claims that the Bible just fits into the milieu of ancient pagan cosmogonies. It is radically different with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Fathers, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word because it reveals who you are. This isn't just an academic exercise in studying origins, but it tells us who you are and what you have done. And from that, we learn about you and our relationship to you and and everything related to the purpose of mankind and and uh, the human history. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.